Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about the program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We also thank the Management Learning Journal and the European Group for Organizational Studies for their wonderful support. Now on with the show. Welcome back. Today we conclude episode 88, where Sam, Pedro, Catherine, and Tom are discussing Isabel Menzies' article, A Case Study in the Functioning of Social Systems as a Defense Against Anxiety, a report on a study of the nursing service of a general hospital, published in Human Relations in 1960. In part two, we will examine how the sources of anxiety and the field of medicine have evolved since the article's publication, and what this suggests for contemporary medical practitioners and their patients. If you missed part one or to get the text, they are available on our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We now rejoin the conversation. So in the first part, we try to make sense of the text, right? And we're trying to understand a little bit of the context also of the work of Isabel as a member of the Tavistock Institute and how she engaged in this applied research. And in the process, she was able to give us all sorts of concepts to make sense of organizations, in particular, the ones in which anxiety is so prevalent given the nature of the task, right? And the way in which that seems to be handled by a social system that emerges throughout time in which a set of practices are put in place that do not really address the core problem, but somehow ameliorate them to a certain extent. But I think what is very compelling in this story, looking from 2022 where we are, is to discover that anxiety at work is not so new, right? The problems of keeping people on their jobs is not so new, right? There is so much discussion today about the great resignation. But for, I think, the past decades, I think that a lot of management research was more concerned with issues about satisfaction, identification of the worker with the work, and so on and so forth, right? And I think we missed these baseline issues of the stress and the anxiety related to trying to accomplish tasks in complex, interdependent type of workplaces, right? So in a way, I think the text is even more timely today in light of what we are all experiencing and seeing from the newspapers, from our daily engagement at work. Yeah, that's an excellent point. When I think about uh, the whole discourse about anxiety in my field, or you know where I'm where I'm working, a lot of it has been associated with you know the feeling of being a part of the organization, um, and that the organization is committed to its members, and that a part of it is to reduce anxiety because there's a significant commitment made not just by the individual member but also the family. Uh, and so we have programs that help with service members, and we have programs that help with family members precisely to try to reduce anxiety such that when somebody goes forth and does a dangerous mission, they know that the rest of their family is being uh, cared for. But I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things I think that goes through various cycles because there's, there just never seems to be any such thing as the elimination of anxiety. It's more of a cycle over what is, what are we anxious about? 
in good times, we're anxious about competition with our peers or uh, our ability to get promoted or to be uh, or to be mobile. In downtimes, it's it's fears or anxieties over job security, job uh, stabilization. But there's never a time in which there is no anxiety, even in the best of times. There's no in, there's there's no absence of of anxiety, and so the systems for there's obviously all kinds of coping mechanisms. As your anxieties change, you you enact different mechanisms. Um, now here, this this is one where it's a bit more systemic, and you know I guess some some of them are individual level coping mechanisms, and others are organizational level. Individual level as well. It's about your tolerance levels for anxiety. So a certain amount of anxiety. Provided it isn't overwhelming, even though I think the Freudian definition of it is where it is overwhelming of, of your feelings could potentially be healthy. And, and some people live quite well with higher levels of anxiety um, without it being detrimental to other aspects of their lives, perhaps. So, you know, somebody like an entrepreneur probably deals with, you know, volatile situations, high risk situations quite a lot and is quite comfortable with that sense of anxiety. But, you know, others less so. Um, and I think a lot of literature I've been reading around this has been about the role of healthy boundaries in managing anxiety as well. And, and we talked a bit about that in the first part, about getting that balance right between having a role and tasks to perform to feel you are actually achieving something but also the recognition of the self and the individual within that and what you bring as a human being when you bring yourself to work as well. I might be kind of optimistic, but I think we might be seeing currently efforts to deal with this anxiety in a more healthy way, uh, which is something we definitely don't see in this, in this paper and in this case. But we do see now organizations, so yeah, keeping some sort of flexibility so you can, you know, adapt the, your kind of personal needs to your work needs and, and have some sort of balance what you were mentioning Catherine about you know having these kind of healthy boundaries or even spaces to you know voice emotions and deal with emotions and talk about anxiety and all the you know all the kind of difficult feelings that might be in the way of you enjoying the work that you're doing or even performing it effectively um, so I, I think we are seeing or we do have more kind of consciousness about these issues now and we do see a greater effort uh, from organizations to kind of try and deal with this a little bit. To recognize that they have a role to play in the containment of these emotions as well. And um, I think that is something that's explored more by Tavistock Institute. You know, we saw that through the pandemic in organizations and companies, you know, the relationship between the employer and the worker seemed to have survived and, and thrived through it where there was that feeling of, of containment and that people could express their emotions, their fears, and their anxieties through it as well. But that's probably a discussion for another day. As I'm hearing all of this, what I'm thinking is that it seems that our discourse about anxiety, which you're, you both are touching on, right, the type of concerns that exist, they have moved from the anxiety related to the task fulfillment in the organization to the sort of recognizing the personal needs and the work needs and the person, you know, at a broader scale. We can think about the social, broader social demands that are placed on organizations, right, in terms of caring not just for their workforce, for all types of social issues and etc. 
But I think what is interesting about this paper is exactly that just if you look at work, there is plenty to be anxious about. And I think that besides the impact that it has for the person, of course, it is does a very interesting and I think path-breaking work of showing that has implications for the retention of people, for the capacity to change, the ability of the organization to learn, right? And to adjust and to be flexible and to handle crises, if you want to call them, right? So in a way, I think it does a great job to show that anxiety, something that we usually thought, especially back then, right, as a very personal psych type of issue, it's also reflected in a certain extent in the very interdependent and social aspects that take place at work. And that has severe consequences for organizations in and of themselves as well. The only person that experienced this in reading it, maybe it's a little bit naive of me. I'm just interested to hear what you felt about the kind of Freudian aspects about the arousals of emotions and feelings at work. It's not really something that I think about on a day-to-day basis, but it's something I'll definitely be more aware of. Um, you know, in talking about the nature of anxiety, you know, that we kind of, in a Freudian way, we kind of navigate our way through work by, you know, basically keeping in check either our aggression or our libidinous tendencies um, as, as we make our way through our working day. You know, in this constant battle, it's, it's a kind of exhausting battle that's at play to, to manage that and the anxiety that comes with it. Um, obviously, I, I think from friends of mine who are psychologists, Freud is pretty passé these days, I think as well. Probably things <laughs> have moved on from that. But I don't know what your own personal responses were to that. What was going through my mind is that uh, there is the aspect of uh, the extent to which the individual uh, has their own anxieties and deals with their own anxieties, has their own coping mechanisms. The article is really getting into the the social system and how the social system either protects or in some cases enables uh, or fosters greater anxiety among its members. There's, there's definitely some of that that was in the article, and I think we can come up with uh, some other examples of how organizations do that. I'm thinking of uh, the episode we did on Kunda. That was, that was an anxiety-producing organization, to, uh, to say the least. Um, but it was done for control. It was done for um, it was done for a purpose, not necessarily a benevolent purpose. Um, what we can kind of think about is what would be uh, an example of a social system where these defense mechanisms exist for a positive purpose as opposed to a negative purpose. I mean, if we can put some valence to it, if you're in an organization, um, private sector organization in a highly competitive industry. You know, going in as a member or otherwise, that uh, at some time there is a potential for that organization to just go away, and that that is anxiety-inducing. So, what constitutes a good defense mechanism or an effective social system to deal with that eventuality? You know, on the good side, of course. You would build in resilience. You would ensure that there was a a golden parachute at the end in case or something like that. And on the negative side, it is we're going to crack the whip and ignore or suppress your your concerns about this because it isn't your concern and you just you just do your job. Um, And one obviously is a little bit 
more, uh, I, I guess the term might be mature or, you know, one would be much more um, desirable than, than the other. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, this, the, the quality of the social systems we set up for defense, whether it's emergent or if it's something that we set up deliberately, it would seem like there would be things we would want that to have and things we would want that to avoid. It's interesting you bring in the, the example of Kunda because in a way the, these organizations are doing completely opposite things, right? Like in the case of, of Mentis and, the, and this article and, and about the, the hospital, what you see is almost like a denial of the emotional, of the human and trying to make everything very kind of impersonal and don't deal with these kinds of, of emotions. Whereas in the Kunda example, what you see is actually an effort to make the work very personal and emotional and kind of blur these boundaries between the personal and the organizational life. And so you create more engagement and more commitment from, from members to the organization. So I think it's, it's interesting because in the case of the, in, in this paper, it seems like she's describing a very immature system that is incapable of changing and evolving, even though everybody is very aware of the problems. And, you know, in some cases it becomes unsustainable and, and you have nurses leaving the program. But then when you look for an example towards, uh, for an ex I mean, for an explanation towards the end of the paper of why this is the case, she kind of goes back to this, you know, psychoanalytical explanation of the individual. It's because we have these tensions within ourselves that we're kind of incapable of changing. Um, and it's too, it's too much tension. You want to avoid it. You don't actually want to deal with it and, and go through it, which I don't know if I'm completely satisfied by that explanation, actually. Like I was kind of hoping more for, you know, some sort of reflection on why it's so hard to change these uh, organizational, cultural and structures and way of functioning that was created by these anxieties and not kind of give a circular answer or say, well, it doesn't change because it's in our human nature, basically. So I wanted to explore that, but before, I'm just going to rewind a little bit to the case of Kunda, which we discussed on episode 49, right? So if the listeners are interested, they can go on and check Kunda's book that we discussed, Engineering Culture. And that's what made me think, as you were talking about that, is that it seems the ratio or relationship between personal life and work life has to change because, as you just said, it seems that the problem there was within the remit of how the task is organized, how work is organized and everything, right? And the Kuda's work because they are trying to get the whole person invested in the organization, like, you know, it seems that the way through which that happens is that, of course, the organization expands, so to speak, or the, as you said, the boundaries get blurred. Right. So as I was saying at the beginning, and it seems that this, even though we do not think of that consciously, is the assumption we have when we talk about work-life balance, when we talk about emotions at work, it, because we are trying to square everything through the prism of organizations, instead of thinking that that is a very neat type of slice of our life, right? And I think that's sometimes one of the assumptions that I don't like in the debate, right? That something, everything has to be resolved by being brought onto the um, table of the organization and work. And from that, we should think how life and relationships and families and whatever should be structured, right? Is that it has become more of a black hole that absorbs more and more and more and more. And then it becomes the Archimedes point through which 
we see our whole life, right, in society. So I, I wanted to point that, which maybe help us to think about um, Isabel's point on why it's immature and she's trying to do the psychological perspective, which, you know, we said at the beginning, I'm sure she's trying to sell that perspective. But as we said in the part one as well, the resistance is probably due to a number of things, right? Either because people had experience of changes that were of a particular type, maybe because there is always power embedded in organizations, right? So therefore, to change it, what would that mean for different people at different places? And we have to bear in mind that nurses in a hospital are in the lower scale, so to speak, right? Because usually are the doctors which are the ones that have command. So we, we only have this story from a particular fraction, right? So if one would probably try to understand what is this system doing, maybe we have to understand what it, how it is embedded in the organization as a whole, right? So then we can start maybe unpacking what are the more social aspects that are, you know, leading these people to double down, so to speak, in the routines and habits that they already um, have constructed and enact and norm naturalize in their daily work. I'm glad you brought up doctors because, you know, there's one of the things that I think is kind of interesting, and maybe this gets to a little bit more about talking the the shock that these uh, nursing students are going through is there there is some sort of a, a picture of the prototype of what is the ideal nurse and there's a prototype of as as far as what is the ideal doctor there's probably something that is industry common and then there are things that are context specific where this particular hospital or set of hospitals being looked at has an image of it that may differ from say the hospitals in our respective countries from where we're calling in from. And then there's the prototypical relationship between doctor and nurse, which did come up in the paper, where the ideal that was brought in by the nursing student is that, well, I'm a part of the team. I'm I'm uh, going to be able to advise. I'm going to you know help and be somewhat of an assistant, whereas in the doctor's eyes, the relationship is very, very different. And uh, so then I want to stress, you know, reading, going back to our Abbott episode about professionalism, because we are now talking about two different professions. There are some perfectly valid, if not always satisfying reasons why these strata exist, you know, why the doctors are at one level and the nurses are at a different level. And that the, the relationship between the two that may, to an outside observer, not seem to be a happy or a healthy one, actually is beneficial for the profession and for the ability of the hospital to deliver services efficiently. And, and I think uh, this is also important. Accountability. Who's accountable for the care, ultimately? There's all of those that uh, come into play in terms of the system, broader, not just with the nurses, that I think... Um, if we're looking at the nurses in isolation, we can see certain patterns that we may not like, but they, they may actually have a, a, you know, a contextual purpose for being there. It's, it may not necessarily be what, what we would expect, but it works. So yeah, it becomes uh, self-perpetuating, self-protective. So you brought something that it was something that I think I was missing in the paper, which is exactly this discussion of the social organization of the work first, right, for which the task is, of course, well-known, right, looking at the work itself, and she starts by talking about the task, right, but then, of course, she puts it aside because she's trying to do something else, 
because she's trying to understand why the tasks are carried out in such a way and she's trying to go to a deeper layer, let's call it that way. But the other thing is also the idea, and you brought the case of the nurse in the relationship with the doctor, that professionals have of themselves and the interactions they have, right? Juliette Benigno um, studies nurses and she has great papers that discuss exactly some of that. The idea that nurses have of how patients should behave and what kind of care they deliver depending on the patient they have, right? Anselm Strauss and many others in the Chicago School have long studied nurses and are famous for that. And there is like famous papers on that. And one of them is about the social life and death of patients, right? And it's exactly, again, about the kind of ideas that the group of nurses generates. And maybe it's because this hospital is so dynamic, so changing, and, you know, um, she doesn't get so much at how the particular ties and exchanges and interactions that exist as work gets accomplished also produces a whole set of social structures which you know are related to the idea of what it means to be a good nurse what nurses expect the patients to be how they expect the doctors to behave vis-a-vis then and when they break these tacit assumptions and so on yeah it's also worth uh, kind of now fast forwarding to the present context because of how much it's changed um those relationships are now uh, defined a little bit differently because I, I, I can't speak for all of our countries, of course, but you know, certainly in the United States, since the 1960s, we've gone to a much more of a managed care approach. When you get enter into the system with an illness or a significant injury, you're being treated differently by the system from uh, times past. You're no longer going down to the corner doc- doctor's office of a single doctor with a, you know, a, a, a small crew, you're going to a primary care clinic, which has a range of doctors. You know, it's a, it's like a mini, uh, almost a mini hospital. And again, I think some of that is built because of not so much the change in the task. The task is essentially the same, but it's all the administration that comes with it. And the, uh, you know, authorities, liabilities, um, all of that and money, that's, you know, uh, money being a factor of it, you know, so the environment of the provision of service has changed such that it created all of this need for different social structures, which produces different sets of anxieties and in turn different sets of, uh, of defense mechanisms, where now you're passed off from one clinic, you know, you have somebody who's in charge of providing care, but then you're passed off to specialty care here, there, everywhere, depending on which you know, particular illness or injury that you have. And it's distinct transactions with different specialty clinics to try to figure it out, as opposed to just having the one doctor who sees all and delivers delivers the answer, manages it personally. In a way, I think the text is kind of um, premonitory because it talks exactly about the desire to think of the patient as a whole, We probably talk about integrated care, patient-centered care today, right? And it seems as to be, to some extent, a desire from nurses, right? And this is, what, 70 years ago? (laughs) But it seems that all the system is pushing the other direction, right? Although there is the aspiration, but the system doesn't allow for that to happen. And we are still debating those things. And as you said, it only became more complex to achieve that, given the way that healthcare is organized. 
Just picking up a bit on, on what Tom said there, I was thinking, I had the same thinking really about the kind of medical care model in the UK. And in particular, I was thinking of general practitioners, GPs, which is like the, the one-stop shop doctor that you go to locally with any ailment that you had years ago. And, and for many years, it was felt that GPs were overburdened overworked, working ridiculously long hours, people staying for very long appointments. And in recent years, there's been a move towards diffusing or delegating that work out to specialists within a practice. So not dissimilar to what you described, Tom. So in a local GP surgery, you would have a phlebotomist for blood tests. You would have a midwife. You would have a diabetes expert to speak to about your diabetes, an asthma practitioner and that's how it's gone but interestingly the GP appointments now are 10 minutes and as I know from some people who are GPs that their their burnout levels are really high they're hating their jobs it's completely you know they're watching the clock as soon as people arrive the focus is on the task just going through a checklist with the patient so in a way, it's gone the other extreme, the elements of the work that they probably went into the profession for, which was the care and, and you know, the discussion, the getting to know the individual to understand sometimes what's really going on over and above the physical symptoms has kind of gone. So in an effort to, to lighten their workload, they've been left with the bare bones of, of a very kind of task-driven role. And they've lost the elements of the job that they used to love. So it's interesting to see how that's gone. What this uh, what this kind of speaks to me is like uh, not just the character of the anxiety that's changed or that we're trying to the social structures are defending against, but uh, who's the locus of it? Isabel's study it was the locus was at the nurse level. There was very different different anxieties, I suppose, between the doctor and the and the nurse. But the nurse was bearing a lot of the brunt of it. Now it's what what is we call them a primary care manager. Um, I don't know what you what you call them, but basically the locus of anxiety is now shifted to them, and it's and the task, again same task. The nature of the task is the same, but its character has changed. The tyranny of the clock, uh, being a primary source of that anxiety, it's created a whole different set of anxieties and a whole different set of structures. I I don't know how you can cope with that. I, I certainly don't think I could I could cope with running patients through like an assembly line. And you know, that's not just the doctors who are who are feeling that anxiety. It's also the patients. No patient wants to be treated like a part on an assembly line. Uh no, I was just gonna say it seems that the, the tension is kind of unresolved in this because the solution keeps it's it's still the same right in all the examples that you're giving like when you try to standardize and to make these like create this logic of like yeah the assembly line uh and still fail to recognize the nature of the most fundamental task which is care which talks about you know personal relationships and emotions and really having the time and the flexibility to create this relationship with the patient and not have it been kind of artificially ended or, you know, it seems like all these types of solutions just create more anxiety because even though they try to maybe make, make some boundaries and some safe, safe boundaries for the professionals to, to navigate and to do their work, it seems that because they don't understand 
the most fundamental characteristics of the task, then they will keep perpetuating this anxiety. It is a bit of my own obsession as well, like Sam, but I cannot think of it as not a case of enabling dysfunctional bureaucracy, right? Or if you just talk about the formalization or standardization, right? To what extent are guidelines supporting or de-skilling, being forced or being, you know, supportive of the task and the professional at hand, right? And however, what this discussion made me think is that we moved from nurses to doctors in trying to understand why is that the system maybe has endured so much in this particular context that Isabel studied, right? Probably because there's interdependencies also with broader professionals at the hospital. But then we move a level up to the whole national level and variations in geography and, you know, ways through which care is delivered. And the unfortunate, if I may say, tendency we live today in which the primary purpose, as Sam just said, seems to be brushed aside in favor of other logics, priorities, and concerns, right? Because it's not just formalization in and of itself, but is in the service of efficiency or whatever, right? That is eroding what would we expect to be appropriate care delivered. Oh, you're absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, efficiency, there's just uh, the combination of people who demand more of the healthcare system, the technology, let's face it. I mean, it's amazing what we've been able to do in the last, since uh, just within the past century in terms of advancements in medicine. And, uh, you know, an incumbent with it is a set of enhanced expectations, Ex- expectations of the of the caregivers, expectations of the patients, you know, the, and as with expectations come new pressures, which includes cost. Uh, the cost of medical care increasing is a hot topic. It's been a hot topic. It's all contributes more to the the types of anxieties that uh, that people feel. But then it also kind of brings in an, another pressure, which, you know, you bring it up to the national level because the nation, you know, the legislators or whatever are under intense pressure also to deliver on a system of care. I wanted to get into the, you know, the why, even though we've known about this tension for what seems like forever now, we're still in different ways going back to the same you know, mistakes or perpetuating the same kinds of tensions or in this case, anxiety. Um, And I wonder if, you know, which is, again, goes back to the the comment that I made earlier of, I was kind of hoping to have a little bit more of this reflection towards the end of the paper of whether we just need to accept that organizations are very limited in what they can do to actually deal with this anxiety that seems to come from a very human personal place yeah i don't know i don't know if that's kind of the the answer and we just say well this is you know how it's always going to be because it's hard for organizations to actually get into creating systems that are not avoiding anxiety but actually dealing with it and dealing with like the particular needs not only of the patients or the customers in other kinds of settings but also of the worker and then their relationship between the worker and the the customer or the nurse and the patient in this case. I don't know if I have an answer for that, but one of the things that we were saying just now, which exactly as we start to look at the complexity of the system of systems, there are multiple priorities, right? There are multiple 
parties involved in it. And then there is, of course, different sub goals, right? Because we are, we, the way we have been talking so far, we are assuming that this task providing care and she puts that on the paper and we kind of still see that as important, then gets broken down in all sorts of things. What type of care, you know, what are these competing priorities that exists? What does that mean for the patient versus the specialist versus the nurse? Right. And I think in a way, the way we have, you know, constructed modern life in which organizations are so central and their fundamental aspect is people that are pulling together the effort to achieve a goal. This pulling together, right, always breaks down, of course, um, to some extent. And understanding this goal is not straightforward, right? So in a way, it's not necessarily the, the issue of can we solve the anxiety, but I think there is this inherent tension that exists in trying to achieve whatever we try to achieve through this model, which is the prevalent, right? Creates all of that, right? It's different if you were in an agricultural society, probably um, in a fiefdom in which the concerns would be the <laughs> kind of ties you would have with the people that own the land and so on and so forth. And it would be, you know, the family would be the unit through which work would get done and people would be more or less self-sufficient, right? But since we depend so much with each other, we have specialized so much and our work gets accomplished in such settings, the problems related to this interdependence and complexity are a feature of the fact that we have all these interdependence and complexities. From a personal perspective, I was slightly disappointed at the end of the paper that she didn't particularly provide a solution, which is maybe it's not possible to how, how to address it. And I think perhaps in later writing, she did go on to develop that further. You know, the suggestions at the end about training and piloting how tasks are split differently. But as I said earlier, it's not... I don't think it's, she says directly that she necessarily recommended that anyway, and and it didn't happen. But I think what you're saying, Pedro, is that you know the answer isn't straightforward, and and we lead more complex lives, more complex work lives than ever before, and um, it's not straightforward to address it. I wonder if sometimes less is more. It's uh, interesting because I can I can probably name, though I won't, um, multiple instances in which efforts to specifically confront anxiety produced more anxiety. There's, a, there's an art to this. And I think, I think that's perhaps one of the takeaways is that this dealing with this sort of thing, we, we have structures that help us to cope with anxiety, whatever that is, but there's an art to it. And, and sometimes that's, that's an art of leadership to recognize when a defense mechanism or when the anxiety that uh, members of an organization are feeling are outside of the bounds of what one can reasonably expect to cope with. You know, in a dynamic environment, there's always going to be new sources of anxiety. Some of them are going to be more intense or more important than others. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the worst things you can do is, from a leadership perspective, is to chase these anxieties around, almost like playing whack-a-mole and trying to. Um, trying to make or foster changes as things happen, as opposed to stepping back and trying to say, all right, it's, is this emergent situation something that really is threatening to the organization? Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and deal with it interestingly. We'll deal with it humanely or we'll deal with it whatever. 
the idea of reducing anxiety by avoiding it may very well be legitimate in some instances, but it's almost like a case-by-case thing. If it becomes a dysfunction of its own, then leadership has to step in and change it. So it's, this is, I think this is a kind of a story of leadership, even though that really wasn't brought out overtly. You know, I, I think I'm on the same path, although I was thinking more at the individual level, because I think that what we learn from the papers, that's one of my takeaways, is exactly to show that what appears temporary or symptom, as she calls it, right, or something that is an instance of something is actually connected with something broader, right? And she goes on to say that there is all these kind of reasons and um, procedures and routines that are actually, you know, supposed to resolve it, but they don't and so on and blah, 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 blah. blah. So it's kind of, you know, so to speak, it's kind of a a chronic disease. (laughs) And that's the argument I just made, right? That the complexity makes that there is always going to be kind of issues in organizations. And Tom, you made a great argument saying there are always going to be new sources, right? So I think then that not the solution, but the way forward is one of reflexivity. And I think that's what you're hinting at with the idea of leadership, right? Which is, in principle, this capacity to try to provide meaning for people about their work, to try to recontextualize and give direction to whatever needs to be done, which can be also done by the worker level, right? And I think that, in a way, that's what the paper offers to us, is to be able to re-describe the problem at something of a different scale, of a different type, with a different source, right? Being able to exactly, to use the organizational imagination mixed with a sociological imagination to see in what extent what I'm experiencing, and we are all experiencing now during the pandemic, or if you're a nurse in the 50s in this hospital, it's actually connected to the way the work is divided, to the expectations upon me on my role, the extent I have or not autonomy, right? Which doesn't resolve what is to be done, but provide awareness of what is to be done. And maybe what needs to be done is not to create more procedures or do an organizational change as much as they can be valuable, right? Because we know, for example, that um, you know, it's a typical thing things are uncertain, you create procedures, people get nervous about that, right? Because then you want more specification, more clarity, spell things more, and it becomes an endless cycle. But it's a different type of action that's to be taken. Maybe it's about the attitude one has towards one's own work. That's what's making that point about maybe we should not expect the organizational paradigm to resolve issues that are about, you know, life in general. Maybe we should not expect that the same Tools that construct the problem, the way the work is set up, for example, can resolve that, right? It's about something else. And we talked about that, that many things that we take for granted from job crafting to, you know, employment benefits and workers' rights were, in a way, a response to problems of industrialization, of which this case is one illustration, right? So I think that's what is the not solution, but potential directions through which people have walked and trying to bring something new to this enduring um, challenge. Yes, since we are sharing kind of main takeaways, I think that my favorite thing about this paper was, and that I think connects to this idea of, you know, how reflexivity um, and a deep understanding of the type of work can actually help and maybe eventually like provide some, you know, ideas for positive change is, you know, the way she has of really focusing on the nature of the task 
and the complexity of the task to understand why certain organizational structures, cultures and ways of functioning exist. And so for me, that was kind of a very nice, you know, bottom up uh, approach to understanding things that the first moment, like when she starts in the paper, seemed like a contradiction, right? Why, why are these things not changing if this seems to be a problem and this has been a problem for, for a very long time? So I think I, that would be the, the main takeaway for me. The main takeaway I have from today's discussion, actually, even more so than the paper, is about, you know, getting that balance in work between the need for assuaging our natural anxieties that we bring to work through levels of bureaucracy, actually, and uh, and process and task lists, but also giving space to the individual to be human and to be humane in, in what they do. And realizing that can oscillate, but ideally there's a healthy mix required. But it it depends, of course, on the institution, the role, and the task. But but you do need both for self fulfillment, but also for efficiency, which is ultimately the aim of most organisations. I'll just uh, I'll just say that one of the big takeaways is uh, kind of rethinking. For what purpose and how um, do we welcome new members into not so not so much just an organization, but also into an institution or an industry or a profession? Are we doing it right for the right reasons? I, I can definitely see how the things in this case study um, are very applicable in so many other settings. I mean, it even came up in the police socialization episode we did with Van Manen. There's very much a similar process of breaking in police officers by getting them to stop thinking about themselves individually and to adopt a particular mindset and approach that was very conformist, for example. If that is indeed what produces the best outcome, even though we individually may not see it that way, then, you know, there's there's sort of a so be it, you know, that you got to take to it. But I don't think uh, all of us are going to think that way. And so it goes back to for what purpose and why and how are we welcoming people in? And so we make sure that if, if, especially in a profession where we really need that service and we need long-term commitment of the people that we welcome in, we expect them to come in to serve for 25, 30, 50 years, then we have to think about how we're welcoming, welcoming them and setting them up for success for that long period of time. I think that my takeaway reflects all your takeaways, right? Because Sam told us about reflexivity, Catherine about balancing, and you talked about forward purpose. And I was listening to that and I thought about my dance instructor, my dance teacher that always says that the body is always moving. We don't think about that, but even where you are still, for the moment you are born, it's always in movement. It only stops when we die, right? And I was thinking, in a way, organizations are always doing that as well, right? They're always dynamic. They're always, they're always changing, right? It, it's, it's alive. People are staffing them and work is the blood of organizing. So that means that the challenge them is a continued challenge of balancing things out, right? And I think that 
the interesting thing about reading case studies that were produced 70 years ago is exactly that you see that some of the things that were put in place were probably because you're trying to resolve some earlier issues. And of course, there is this dynamic equilibrium and then new things are brought in and these things have been created, but it's an eternal process, right? So I think it's in a way, you can read that in a negative way to say, oh my God, there's no final solution. But the positive is that, well, we are always striving for it, right? So it is this promise of trying to do better next, but at the same time, acknowledging that we have limits, I think is my main takeaway of this text. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback. So if you liked or didn't like something or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you when we present another classic reading on organization theory or management science here on Talking About Organizations.